times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. And I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. 
So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Are we I was saying I think it's pretty clear this morning that God wants us to see a big picture of himself. And we will see that I hope clearly in this passage this morning. Father, yes, I ask that you would grant us that that grace that we would see something of you that is bigger, greater, more majestic, the the vastness and and wisdom of your sovereignty and how you reign over all things and yet use all things for the good of those who love you. How awesome you are, how mysterious, how strange you are to us, yet still so good, so valuable, so worthy, worthy. Make yourself worthy in our eyes today as we behold your word. All the more. In Christ's name, amen. So we've come to the last chapter of 2 Samuel, and you might think that we're about to finish 2 Samuel, but of course you would be wrong. Uh, I wanted to hit the two opposite layers of the chiastic structure in this epilogue before we then dive into the epilogue's heart, the chiastic structure's heart, and return to 2 Samuel chapter 22 where we see David's last words, the song of David's last words. That's 23. Now remember when you see a chiastic structure like this, that I believe, yeah, that's up on the screen, you know that there's a larger theme that's governing the the various individual parts, and the theme of this chiastic structure we must hold in our minds, even as we look at this passage today. The theme is this. The will of God must be understood and obeyed. We saw last week in chapter 21 that David acted in ignorance of God's will. This week we will see David acting in disobedience to God's will, and in both instances, disaster ensues. (laughs) And similar to last week, we come to another very troubling passage. Did it cause you to ask questions as we were reading through it? Many, Many scholars consider 2 Samuel 24 to be the most troubling passage in the entire Old Testament. Now, last week we were forced to question David's sense of justice, and we saw that it was twisted and it was irredeemable, almost, And it was deeply troubling. This week, what makes this chapter even more troubling is that it forces us to question the justice of God. It is not, though, twisted and irredeemable. This time we see justice, God's sense of justice that is righteous and it is holy and it is shrouded in mystery. So it is indeed mysterious. Like I said, this chapter 
probably should cause you to answer questions, and I think that if you didn't, or it probably calls you to ask questions, and if you didn't ask questions when we read through this chapter, then you need to read it again, or you weren't listening very carefully when Donna so graciously read it for us. There are some deep, deep questions here, and we don't have time to explore all of the answers or implications of those questions in 2 Samuel 24, but what we want to do is try to understand what we can and understand more so who is this God? Why? I don't know that we're going to answer the question, why is this God so mysterious? But in light of this God being so mysterious, at whatever the cost, we want to worship this God. And I think that we should not be so surprised in the mystery that is God because should we expect that our intellect could reach into heaven and pull to earth this infinite one? As God declares in Isaiah 55, 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, try as you may, you will not be able to wrap your mind around this God. And this God, whose words we are reading, these are the very words of the infinite one. And this word has a way of understanding us far more than we have a way of understanding it, right? We can spend our whole lives plumbing the depths of the Bible, never reaching its end, barely scratching its surface, and yet in a moment, Scripture can strike your heart and cut you to the core. That's what we want to happen today as we look at his word. As we seek understanding, as we try to understand this God, I hope that our hearts are cut. And you're going to see, I believe, so much in this passage that relates to us, so many practical applications, we're just going to be touching on them, like skimming over them. But ultimately, this passage reveals to us an awesome God that weaves history majestically for his glory, and we, brothers and sisters, are caught up in that. Okay, let's get into it. Chapter 24, it might be obvious to you, and I think the headings could have tipped you off to this by now, but there are three sections to chapter 24. There's the census, there's a judgment, and there's an altar. And right off of the bat, as you begin reading chapter 4, the text hurls you into some of the most mysterious reaches of all reality. Look at this again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I might know the number of the people. When you read that first sentence, were you stunned? Shocked? God is angry with Israel. And so to bring judgment on Israel for their apparent wickedness, God incites David to take a census, and a census that is wicked for David to conduct. What? And we're not told why God is angry with Israel. It's David's sin to 
to bring judgment on Israel. He just does it. And we're not told how God incites David to sin and then holds David responsible for that sin. It's just how it is. We are given no explanations. We are simply observing God being God. And when there are no explanations, brothers and sisters, we must resist the urge for speculation. So to avoid speculation, let's go to 1 Chronicles, where I think you know 1 Chronicles is very often giving us a parallel account to the things that we're reading in the Samuels. For so many of David's uh, events in his life, listen to how the parallel account of 2 Samuel 24 is in 1 Chronicles 21, how it begins. And I hope you see the difference. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So is it Satan who incited David or is it God? And the answer is yes. Here I think that the story of Job is incredibly helpful for us. Remember the story of Job? Apart from Job, totally outside of Job's understanding, in sort of the the heavenly court, Satan approaches God. And then God directs Satan's attention to Job and says, look how righteous Job is. Look at his amazing faithfulness. And Satan says to God, He's only righteous because he's successful, because he has prosperity. And then Satan essentially is like, what if we, what if we bring suffering? What if that, suff- that, that prosperity and that success goes away? He won't worship you then, God. And God allows Satan to afflict Job, to bring terrible, terrible suffering upon him. But through Job's trials, through the course of that book, these greater glories are revealed. And it's amazing because the glories that are revealed not only to Job are revealed to us thousands and thousands of years later. The suffering of Job is, it reverberates upon us because there are glories through it. And in the end, Job does not reject God, but he remains faithful to God. And then God lavishes upon him this abounding restoration. And Satan is shamed. He's wrong. He's disarmed. There is a similar principle at work in 2 Samuel 24. So putting speculation aside... Using Scripture to help interpret Scripture, this is what we always want to do, we understand that Satan tempted David to sinfully conduct a census. And Satan can only ever operate by decree of God, the Almighty, for God is the first cause, as he is the first cause of all things. Thus, 1 Chronicles can say that Satan incited David, while 2 Samuel says that God incited David. And I want to put this in other words to make it crystal clear, I hope, as crystal clear as our feeble minds can handle it. God uses Satan's ideas and David's sinfulness to punish the people of Israel. Wielding the will of demons and men. Astonishing. Look at what happens next. Verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add, people, add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. 
But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. It's not immediately clear yet, but we will see it with more clarity as we go on. The census that David is demanding is a census account of the fighting men of Israel. He wants to number the military. And Joab, who is the commander of the army, he's the bulldog of Israel, and and the generals that are with him, they are resisting David on this point, which is strange, right? Because if, if anybody would want to measure the military, you would think it would be the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But they resist the notion. They, they don't want anything to do with the census, and especially Joab. Verse 3, Joab essentially says to David, rather than counting the military, may you be satisfied by God's abundant provision within your kingdom. Like, be happy with what God has given you. Know that it is enough. Know that it is abundant. Why must you count? And then Joab goes on to say something that I think really does take us to the heart of what's going on, of why the census is evil. Joab says, look at it in verse 3, he says, why does my Lord delight in this thing? I think that word delight is a clue for us. Delight has to do with desire, right? Delight is something that is within your heart. Because David delights in this thing, it's revealing something about his heart. And the text is clearly indicating that it's not a good thing, that there's something rotten within David's heart. So based on Joab's response to David, I think think this is what we see happening. David is ignoring God's provision. God's faithfulness, God's generosity, God's strength, He's ignoring it, and he is going his own way. He wants to measure his strength. Remember that word delight. David wants to delight in, or you might say gloat in, the power he wields. This great military force at his command, he's feeling rather proud of. And the census we see isn't the real issue. The real issue is the rot in David's heart. It's his, his, his disobedient desires. Rotten desires that do not belong in the place of a man who's supposed to be after God's own heart. The king of Israel. In Psalm 20, David wrote these words, which I think are beautiful. And, well, Some trust in chariots and horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And David has forgotten. And he's put this in reverse order. David is placing his trust in chariots and horses. And he's forgetting the faithfulness of God. And somehow, Joab and the other commanders... They see this going on in David's heart as he orders the census. They understand what it's really about. Pause. 
there are three things. They see this going on in David's heart. I think there are three things that we must see right at this moment. And I think each one of these three things could be a sermon unto themselves. First thing that we need to see is that we are never to rejoice in our prosperity or our success. Never. No, we are to be grateful for prosperity, be thankful to God if we do feel any measure of success because it's coming from his hand. You did not do that. He does it for you. He brings it to you by his grace. So we're not told to rejoice in our prosperity and success. Do you know what we're told to rejoice in? Rejoice when, when you face various trials. Rejoice in your sufferings, that you get to share in the sufferings of Christ. Because it is through the fires of trial that God refines us, that he transforms us more and more into the image of Christ, and that these glories begin to spill out upon the church as we witness an awesome God taking people through the fires of trial. That's when we rejoice. The second thing we can see is that it's very hard to remain faithful in the face of prosperity. Very hard. Prosperity tempts us to be complacent, to be lazy, to be forgetful and indifferent, and it lulls us to spiritual sleep, and there we are, forgetting, once again, God's faithfulness. And believe me, that right here in the United States, we are a prosperous people. In ways that I think we hardly recognize We are the wealthiest people that has ever lived on the face of planet Earth. So, our ability to resist prosperity is no better than David's ability to resist prosperity. We are subject to the same temptation, and it is a danger to us. It is a lion crouched at the door. The third thing to see... Joab's resistance to David right here is a way of escape, isn't it? Joab dissents. He says no. And in that moment, David could have heard it and said, you're right, Joab. What am I thinking? I want out of this. So through the voice of Joab, God is being faithful to David despite David's sinful desires. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Joab was the way of escape for David. And when temptations come upon you, God is faithful and provides a way of escape. Now, moving beyond those three, like a fool, David thinks himself wiser than those around him. When we went through Proverbs, didn't we see that again and again? A fool doesn't know he is a fool and thinks himself to be wise. And so David presses the issue, commands the census, and then despite their misgivings, and like dutiful soldiers, the military commanders obey the king and they circumnavigate the kingdom to count the fighting men of Israel and Judah. I'm going to throw parentheses in here. It's been a while since I've done a parentheses, but you know I love them. We've seen in multiple places now in Scripture, in our studies, that 1,000 or 1,000 is the largest unit of uh, military grouping in Israel. 
So it does not necessarily mean that it's comprised of a thousand individual soldiers. Think of it more like a battalion in the U.S. Army. When you read that there were 500,000 men of Judah, you should really be understanding that to say Judah was able to form 500 battalions. Each military unit, they could have 1,000 men, potentially, but they could have 500 men, or they could have 1,500 men, and we don't know. It isn't that precise as we would like it to be. And it also explains that when you're looking at 1 Chronicles 21, why the census renders different numbers, 1 Chronicles 21 to 2 Samuel 24. Spend the time on that parenthesis. First, because I want to help you harmonize 1 Chronicles 21, 2 Samuel 24, because I don't want there to be doubts where doubts are not necessary. I want to help to quiet those doubts. The second reason I labor this parenthesis is I think it's helpful to know that these numbers, what these numbers represent later on in our passage when 70,000 men die. It does not mean 70,000 literal individuals, but 70 military units, which could have been a significantly less number of individuals. Okay, close the parentheses and move on. Ten months go by almost. In the passage, Joab returns. The numbers come back to David. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. All the way back in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul disobeyed, the will of God, he didn't recognize his sin at all until he was confronted by a prophet, by Samuel. And then even then, he's not repentant. He throws himself on the ground and he grovels and he's filled with self-pity. But David is different, right? When his sin is consummated, when these, the number of the census comes back, before any prophet confronts him, David immediately recognizes his wickedness. It says his heart, his is struck. I think this is what continues to make David such a compelling figure. He's not grown cold. He cares. He feels the pain of his sin, and, and we know what it is to feel the pain of our sins, and I, I think hopefully we know what it is to be struck in our heart by our own sin. But conversely, Scripture speaks of something called a seared conscience. And it's when you sin and it doesn't affect you. And you sin again. And then you sin again. And you're not bothered by it. And you sin again. That is a seared conscience. And it is incredibly dangerous. It means one of two things. One, it means you're not a believer. Or two, you could be a believer. A follower of Christ. But you disgrace the cross of Christ and you treat the poured out blood of Christ as cheap. And so either way, repent and believe because today is the day of salvation. But David's heart struck him. And he immediately repents of his sin. And notice how David does not say, the devil made me do this. Or, God, you did this to me. No, David takes full responsibility. He takes complete ownership because he knows that the temptation came from him out of his own rotten heart. And out of that sinful heart came this disobedient 
action. And I think you see there that temptation itself, it's, it's not wicked. But it's when you, that temptation, that, that thought comes into your mind, and then in your mind you sort of curl up with that thought. You begin to dwell on it. That's evil. And then, using your hands or your mouth, you follow through, and you bring that thing that was in your mind now out into the world through your hands, and that too is evil, and both are sinful, and David knows that he is guilty of both. And so full of remorse, he pleads that God would take away his sin, take it from me. Like he's, he's stained by it. He's burdened by it. It's crushing him. He says, God, take it from me. And you know what he's doing? He's appealing to what God promised him following the Bathsheba incident. Back in 2 Samuel 12, 13, we read, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sins or taken away your sins. You shall not die. And David wants this again. He seeks the same. And you see now that his trust is turning. Now away from himself, knowing that he's helpless and hopeless without the work of God, and he's beginning to trust that this faithful God will forgive him, that there is mercy in this God. And yes, God will forgive David, but David's repentance does not turn back God's wrath towards Israel the nation. And you remember, that's who he's angry with to start. Look at verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee for three months before, the foes, well, before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. <laughs> as far as I can tell, this is the only place in the Bible where someone gets to pick their punishment or pick their poison. Each one of these three is a consequence that, for covenant unfaithfulness that we see in Deuteronomy 28. And I'm not going to go there and show you, but feel free on your own time. The consequences come with spans of time, right? Three years, three months, three days. And I think the implication is to say that as time decreases, the potency of the judgment increases, but no matter what David chooses, the message is clear. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for Israel. It is not avoidable. And notice how David only responds to one of the three options. He doesn't actually answer it. He just says, not the second one. Don't give me the second one. He fears falling into the hands of men because men have no mercy. And it might seem to you like that's a self-serving answer, but it isn't. I assure you, it is not. Because what would it mean for the king to fall into the hands of men? 
Another rebellion, another civil war. We've seen that time and again in Israel. And, w- and when that happens in the Samuels, thousands of people die. The divisions among the people, between the people, grow deeper and deeper and nearly break apart the nation. No, the second option, the king falling into the hands of men, is indeed a judgment against Israel. But he rejects, David rejects that option because it involves a human element, that merciless human element And so David responds to Gad with, let us, Israel, fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. Again, David trusting in the mercy and the faithfulness of God. And I think that as we see that, we we see that David's repentance is authentic. It's genuine. And David is now acknowledging that, that grace is not cheap. No, where there is sin, it must be paid for. Where there is evil, there must be punishment. There must be justice. And so he's not trying to weasel out of anything. And even still, David knows that God's justice is always tempered by his compassion. So he rejects the second option. David then leaves the remaining choice in the hand of God, the first or the third. And God chooses the pestilence. Verse 15 So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So God sent pestilence upon Israel at the hand of an angel. And my heart starts beating right at that moment. At the hand of an angel. That's no ordinary angel. Did you catch that in verse 16, who this is? This is the angel of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 21, 18, the parallel passage, the angel of the Lord is the one speaking to Gad as if he's God. This angel speaks as if he's God or like God is the angel And once again, as we have seen earlier in David's story, as we saw in our last sermon series with Abraham, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. And more specifically, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Son of God. And your heart starts beating. Because this angel is the one who will one day be called the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah, the angel of the Lord, he's tearing through Jerusalem and he's reaping destructions. And just as he is about to pounce upon Jerusalem, the Father speaks mercy, enough! Now stay your hand. And he stops on a hill overlooking the city, right on a Jebusite threshing floor. And I will show you soon why we know exactly where this angel stops. At the exact moment that God tells the angel to stop, David is in his palace praying. I presume he's in his palace because it puts him in just the right spot to look up the hill. See, there's his palace. 
to look up the hill to where the threshing floor of Aruna would be and see the angel coming, see the destroyer approaching. And if you did see that, wouldn't you fall on your knees and cry out to God, Lord, save us? David cries out to God, these sheep, what have they done? And David knows full well that the sheep are not innocent. That's why this judgment is happening. These sheep are guilty sheep. The whole reason the angel of the Lord approaches Jerusalem, because of Israel's wickedness. But to David, that wicked bunch, it's his flock. Remember earlier in 1 Samuel, the king's role, David's role is to be a shepherd to the people. And when he was a boy, he wrestled with a bear and he wrestled with a lion to protect his sheep. Now as a man, as a king, to protect another flock, David wrestles with the almighty Lion of Judah. And verse 17 ends with David ready to sacrifice himself in place of his people. Take me, destroy me, destroy my entire legacy that the people might be spared. And do you see who David might be prefiguring here? Right there at the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite, God answers David's prayer right in that moment. And the angel stops. So did David's prayer stop the angel or was it God's mercy that stopped the angel? And the answer is yes. Yes, in his mercy, God incited David to pray that prayer at the exact right moment, to stop that angel of the Lord at the exact right place to end the pestilence in his mercy. It was true then, it's true now, because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. So brothers and sisters, pray The Lord is doing mighty things beyond your reckoning through the prayers of the saints. Pray. He is weaving his will. And clearly, the pestilence did not last the full three days because it didn't make it to Jerusalem. Maybe whatever else was beyond that. The city was spared. The time was cut short. The judgment abbreviated. And David was right. God did have compassion And mercy stayed his justice. Justice, Whatever mercy he allots, it is entirely up to the all-knowing, all-righteous will of God. Let's see what happens next. Verse 18, at the altar. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word and the Lord, as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. And this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, 
but I will buy from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted for Israel. God's command through the prophet Gad David is told to build an altar on a ruinous threshing floor. So David has repented, he has prayed, now he must obey. And as David goes up, Aruna looks down and he sees the king approaching, another evidence that Aruna is on a hill overlooking Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem. Aruna and David, then they enter into this negotiation, And Aruna, he's apparently a man of means because not only is he able to offer David threshing floor itself, but all of the things needed for sacrifices. Take it all. And I think he's showing great deference to David, through David, to Yahweh, this Jebusite. Remember, David conquered the Jebusites to take Jerusalem. And here he's pledging his loyalty to David and to Yahweh. And David has, after this, in, in this negotiation, David has this incredible line. I want you to hear this line again. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. My goodness. We can learn so much from David right in that sentence. Worship that, re, that costs us nothing can hardly be called worship. Right? Think, of, think of this, a, a young man he, who has money, he finds a woman of incredible worth and he wants to marry her, so he goes to buy an engagement ring at Dollar Tree. So some, somebody might think that's cute, but, oh, he's a fool. He might as well tell her that she likes, he, he likes her mustache. A principle like this applies to all forms of worship. But I'm going to apply it to the modern form most closest to the context right here in 2 Samuel 24. If you feel no cost when you put that of I can't help but think of what Garrett has been saying to us. Do we evangelize beyond comfort? Do we spend ourselves for the sake of those who need to hear the gospel, who are living and dying their whole lives with never hearing about Jesus Christ, who are right down the corner living in an atheistic lifestyle, starving for hope? Let's learn from David. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. Pay full price. And David pays full price. And then David offers two types of sacrifices. He offers burnt offerings and he offers peace offerings. And burnt offerings are to atone for the people's sins. And peace offerings are to celebrate God's mercy, and in this case, anticipating God's mercy, celebratory. And the fact that both 
In both cases of offering sacrifice, you see in the text there, they're plural, which means that this is beyond David. David is offering these on behalf of the people. Do you know what David is doing for Israel? He's atoning for their sins. And he's expecting, expectantly thanking God for his mercy. And who is David prefiguring? And that very spot where David offers up these sacrifices, it's going to become a place of sacrifice long into Israel's future. First Chronicles 21 tells us that at that exact place, upon the threshing floor of Aruna, the temple, the, the altar within the temple will be built on that exact location. And for centuries, that would be the site that Israel offers sacrifices for atonement and thanksgiving. Back in verse 25, the text says that the Lord responded to David's obedience and offerings, and the plague was averted. At that moment, the plague is averted. So even though the angel of the Lord stopped when David prayed, even though David obediently built the altar, it was still entirely in the hands of God when he would give deliverance. And it happened after the repentance, and after the prayer, and after the obedience. And God then brought the deliverance. And this deliverance, it's like a stone dropped into the waters of time, and its ripples go back a thousand years, and they go forward a thousand years. One thousand years before, long before Aruna built his threshing floor, Abraham built an altar on that same height on Mount Moriah. And there, as Abraham lifted his knife above his son, above his only son, at the last moment, God provided a substitute. Instead of Isaac, a ram caught in a thicket. And that altar, that site, where Abraham was to offer his son, that site became the holy of holies in the temple. A thousand years after David, a son of David, came to Mount Moriah, to Mount Zion, to the temple there. And once David prepared to substitute himself for the salvation of his people, but the son of David, and, and David, the king, atoned for his people at that site. But Jesus, the son of David, did what David could never do in fullness and completeness for the anger of the Lord just outside of the city walls at the exact right spot where justice and mercy met right on Golgotha's height. And there, the Lion of Judah became the Lamb that was slain, and the Innocent One received our full punishment, He our substitution, His blood our atonement for every one of our sins, right at that spot in the exact right moment where justice and mercy met. What glory! How awesome is this God who weaves such wonders! Now consider again the profound mysteries that we see in this passage, and some we've barely scratched the surface of, but how clearly we see that God's judgment ended and his mercy swelled at the exact right spot, the exact right place, only when the angel was upon that spot did David pray. And on that spot he built the altar, the same location, and we should stand back in awe of this God 
Because what has he done in this passage? He has wielded the wills of angels and demons, of a nation and a man, of the turning of the ages. And he does it for our good and for his glory. And this same God is wielding all things together for the good of those who love him. Your life is being wielded for his glory and the good of his people on this earth. Truly. You know how broken you are and rotten your heart is. Truly, his ways are above our ways. As far as the heavens is above the earth, his thoughts are above ours. So, if it costs us everything, let us worship this king. Father, our sovereign God, our almighty one who loves us, who turns wrath aside that we may receive mercy, who you have brought into your family, you call us sons and daughters. What wonders. Father, teach us what it is to pay full price. Whatever the cost to honor you, show us your value that we recognize our life an in, insignificant offering unto that. That you do deem significant. I thank you for your word. And even in some troubling corners of the Bible, glory screams out of it. All praise to you, all glory to you, all wisdom, all honor, all blessing unto you. To you, the Lamb who was slain. It's in Christ's name I pray it. Amen.